Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where the events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. My name is John Keeley. This is the 376th show of ROI, and our guest for today's show is author John Rossard, who is going to talk to us about the economic history of Bettendorf. The history buffs for today's show are Rick Sweet and Ed Broders. The show's theme song is titled Kayla's Theme and is written and performed by Mark Zapto. Our producer and engineer is, as always, Mr. David Baker. This is the opening segment of the show called History is Local, and today we'll be talking about the economic history of Bettendorf with author John Brassard. Welcome to the show, John. Good to be back. Thank you. Excellent. So, well, let's start it out. Um, can you give our listeners a little bit of background on what Bettendorf was like economically at its founding? When Bettendorf was founded, so Bettendorf wasn't always named Bettendorf. That didn't come along until about 1902, 1903. Uh, what it was, depending on which source you go by, was Williamsville or Gilbert. They were basically two towns very close together. If you think of the I-74, or just I-74, uh, the road before you hit the bridge. Lilienthal was on the left-hand side, very close, and Gilbert was on the right, closer to where uh, Our Lady of Lords Church is at now. Uh, just kind of rough. Gradually, they grew together. Depending on what source you go by, they go by Gilbert or Lilienthal, depending on the map, depending on the source. People still argue what was it really named. Pick uh, one. It doesn't really matter. Uh, what it was, was an agricultural town. There was nothing out there. The bluff, and it's hard to imagine, you really have to go to the, the land of make-believe now, because that door has gotten so huge. There was virtually nothing there. Uh, if you go to a small town, imagine the most rural town you can get to, that you can imagine, that you've ever been. And that's probably what Gilbert looked like. Uh, all the streets were dirt. There was nothing on the bluff. There were a lot of trees, a lot of oak. Uh, there were some houses. Most houses were small affairs. I mean, kind of farmhouse things, or maybe a couple stories, kind of a four-square style deal. Um, there was in, uh, kind of inn over in Williamsville, which is how it got started. Uh, the biggest house was belonged to Mr. Gilbert, uh, who the town was named after, and it was a big kind of square stucco house, and that became a landmark in the area, and it's just more or less a normal-sized house. It was not anything too grand. I mean, it was a big house, even by today's standards, but it wasn't like what would come later, and definitely what was going to exist or already existed in Davenport at the time, answered once. Uh, most people owned a couple horses, not horses, but a couple chickens, maybe a pig. Uh, the biggest industry in the area, if you could call it that, was agriculture, primarily onion raising. Uh, later on, Pleasant Valley, which was uh, an unincorporated town, it was pretty much a post office, and kind of a general store I think they had. And beyond that, there wasn't really much there. There were a couple houses, people's farms. They chose it was the people that grew corn and beans like everywhere else in the Midwest, especially Iowa, 
and Western Illinois at the time, but primarily they started growing onions. It was brought by a guy named uh, Isaac Folly. Uh, he was a captain in uh, the War of 1812. He had come west. He settled here with his family, and he moved around the Midwest a little bit, eventually settled at Pleasant Valley, started growing onions, and it caught on. And onions were kind of a labor-intensive crop, so it was a lot of, and it didn't really mechanize, at least in this area, now, uh, which is kind of weird because mechanization in the agricultural history, or industry, rather, really starts taking place in the late 19th century. And now, granted, this is more mid-style, but as when corn and beans and everything else, and cotton and whatever else is mechanizing, Bettendorf wasn't. Uh, Gilbert at that time, or Pleasant Valley. And a lot of people in, Benton, in Gilbert Williamsville would come over, and they engaged in a lot of the onion crops. Now, there were a couple of low-prizing individuals. Uh, there was some quarrying that took place down there, but it wasn't really a major industry. They didn't really employ anybody, didn't really do anything for the town. They were just kind of there. Um, it was really considered a suburb of that Yes, yes, indeed. A suburb of Davenport. There were a couple people that tried to kind of think outside the box. There was a guy that was trying to grow oranges along the riverfront. There was another guy trying to grow bananas along the riverfront. Um, it didn't work out so so well, no matter how hot the centers got, winter always came along. But that's, okay. what Bettendorf, that's what the area is really looking like. Well, let's ask the question then, of course, you've given us the the beginning of, of Gilbert or Pleasant Valley, um, was there any kind of overflow from Davenport? I mean, Davenport, of course, established in 1836, uh, and I'm sure at the time they were not border to border, but did you, was there any kind of documented influx of people going from Davenport to be part of Gilbert's or Pleasant Valley? Now, that's a very good question. At this time, not so much. There might have been one or two people I want to move. You always get that one person that wants to move out to the country. I grew up there. I like the open space. You know, take your poison as far as reasoning goes. There's always that one person that goes over there. But at this point in time, there's no real overflow. However, that is going to change uh, in the early 20th century when the Bettendorf Company moves over there from Davenport. Okay. Um, so, John, because we're on the river, obviously, the first thing that came into my mind as I was thinking about this was what kind of uh, river commerce and things like that were, were taking place in, in Bettendorf. But it, it sounds like the like Bettendorf or Gilbert or whatever you want to call it. Um, it, it sounds like they really weren't involved in that kind of trade, that maybe that kind of trade was happening in Davenport, but hadn't worked its way, uh, further down the river. Um, so is that accurate? Are there some, some river-based industries that are taking on, that are taking place there? No, there's nothing as far as like in LeClaire, because of the LeClaire Rapids, uh, there was a thriving railroad, or I'm stuck on railroads, sorry, that comes later, we'll get to that, uh, steamboat industry, uh, 
they were big on, because of the rapids, they were big on the pilots. They were specially trained to find their way through them and get you safely through there so your boat didn't get hung up. At Davenport, obviously, there's a lot of manufacturing things, especially specifically for the railroad, where it, there you go again, the steamboat industry. Um, and it kind of skips Gilbert, though. There's nothing really going on there. What they would do, though, the biggest thing, and it was for all the farmers in the area, river traffic was at this point in time, for a long time, until around the 1850s, the primary way to get there, get your crops to a bigger market, namely St. Louis at this time, because it was all down the river, was by flatboat. And they did do that. They would harvest their onion crop. And onions were a time-sensitive crop. They yes, shoot. They it was a first. It was a first pro, a first come, first serve type thing. Uh, the faster you could get in the market, the better off you would be. If you got in later, which affects it later during the twenties, uh, then it was bad. So they would harvest them up right away. They would put them on a flat boat, and they would go straight down to St. Louis. Now they may have taken them over to. Davenport. Now, that's going to be an individual basis. Some people might have found it easier. Well, we'll take them to Davenport, put them on a steamboat, and it goes way faster than a flatboat would. Okay. Two questions. Number one, is there any documentation of those people growing oranges and bananas taking them down to St. Louis? And uh, the second thing, the real question, the real question is, uh, when did the railroad come to Bettendorf then? Uh, the railroad didn't really come to Bettendorf for a while. The railroad would come later. There was an interurban car that came later. This was early 20th century. Uh, the streetcar industry was really thriving in the early 20th century in Davenport. It became a huge part of the culture and a huge method of travel. Um, obviously, it dies out with the car. The car is going to kill off a lot of industry, including the railroad eventually. But at that time, there's not a lot of railroad traffic per se. That's going to come more in, uh, it's thriving in Davenport. Obviously, that was the first uh, the site of the first railroad bridge across Mississippi, so they really invested heavily in the railroad early on. In Bettendorf, not so much. Uh, starting in 1902-1903, when the Bettendorf came in, and of course, they're manufacturing for the railroad, you start seeing more traffic and more flow that way going in especially for shipping and, you know, because they're manufacturing everything. They got so huge so fast. Okay. We have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. In times of joy. In moments of grief. Broadcasters come through, even when all else fails. Today, with more ways than ever to experience the moments that transform our lives, Americans still choose broadcast radio and television more than all other media combined. We are the local broadcasters of radio and television, reaching more people, touching more lives. Brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. And then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. My name is John Ke- Keeley. This is the second segment of the show referred to as The Kitchen Table. 
Our guest for today's show is author John Broussard, and we're talking about the economic history of Bettendorf, uh, bananas, oranges, and all. Our history buff for today's show are Rick Sweet and Ed Broders. Rick, as a former city manager of the city of Vegas, you get the first question. Thank you, John. Hey, John, uh, what kind of uh, what kind of big deal, economic deal, uh, came about to uh, get the name of Gilbert changed to, of all things, Bettendorf? The biggest thing, and it's going to be synonymous, can't talk about the economic history without talking about the Bettendorf Company. A man named William Bettendorf was a prolific inventor. I mean, he had over 100 patents to his name with something like 20 pending when he died in 1910. I mean, he invented a lot. He couldn't stop. Um, what he became known for is, first, he was uh, a particular piece of agriculture equipment, a sulky plow. Uh, he had a real gift for hydraulics, and he invented a hydraulic lift sulky plow, which basically you pulled a lever and the plow came up out of the ground. Uh, it was way less labor-intensive. People loved it. And then he reinvented the wheel. He invented something called the Bettendorf metal wheel. Uh, spokes at that time on metal wheels, it wasn't anything new. People had metal wheels, but the spokes would break off. They would just weld them right at the surface of the hub. The Bettendorf looked at it. They said, well, how about we put the spoke inside the hub? And it lasted twice as long. And the metal wheel became a really popular thing. He was originally in uh, Peru, Illinois. Uh, he gave, he kicked the patent, but he gave the company that he worked for the rights to manufacture it. Well, they didn't want to listen to anything he had to say. So he still owned the patent, and he took his toys and went home. And he ends up in Davenport. He ends up uh, making the largest company in Davenport within a few very short years, and, and he's very successful. In 1902, the company, it's in downtown Davenport. It was in downtown Davenport. It was hit by two massive fires and completely destroys it. Uh, they were making wagon parts at the time. They were steel wagon parts uh, for farm wagons. And they were pulling them outside because everything else was gone. And so they didn't offer. They ended up moving to the city of Bettendorf, and he creates this along the riverfront, uh, roughly in the area between where the Isle of Capri is at, uh, all the way down to what's, I'm trying to think of what's there now. Uh, all the way over to where State Street, State Street and Grant Street join. Uh, that was the length of the Bettendorf Company complex. It's a huge thing, uh, and and it becomes this huge deal. And he told them, if you bring us to Bettendorf, we'll reinvest in the town every bit. And he made good on his promise. They paid for him to come there. He built his factory. He's doing really well. And then uh, he started reinvesting in the town. And everything was named Bettendorf. It was the Bettendorf Improvement Company. And he built houses for his workers. And this is where you start seeing that influx from Davenport. People were still working in Davenport. Well, they, it was a good place to work for. They were really keen on safety at a time when there is no OSHA. OSHA is not even a, in anybody's imagination yet. But they took good care of their workers, especially in a dangerous work environment. There's metal bits flying around because everything's made out of metal. They're grinding, they're welding, they're doing all kinds of stuff at them. They uh, built a foundry down there, so there's all kinds of 
molten metal being poured and molds and all kinds of fun stuff. So it's a dangerous work environment. They were real keen on safety. They were real keen on taking care of their workers if somebody got hurt. Uh, before workmen's comp, when companies were just getting rid of people, they had instituted a policy where uh, unofficially it was past the hat. Take a collection forum for the widows and orphans. Take a collection for this guy who's hurt. Helping his family. They made it an official company policy. And it was like the Beckdorf Company work improvement policy or something like that. And basically it was they officially gave funds to them to help them so they could get back on their feet. Um, and people started, they started building houses for their workers. They built the Bettendorf Hotel, which became, started as a place for migrant workers to come in, people from Davenport, people from other places to come and stay until the company actually built them a house in Bettendorf. And that's where Bettendorf really starts to grow. They started paving the streets. Uh, they had the Bettendorf Water Company. They had uh, the Bettendorf Utility uh, Company. It's like a light and power company or something. And it just starts. That's where it starts, and it keeps going from there. Okay, Ed. Yeah, um, John, I want to go back to your earlier comments about the early agricultural history. Um, I had a chance many decades ago to look at uh, what passed for a soil survey of Scott County dated 1919, and they did mention the onions, uh, and it also said at that time that was the most valuable farmland in the state of Iowa. You made a comment before that about people raising beans, and I wondered if you can clear that up because soybeans didn't really become common in this country until after World War II when we developed the processing and the, infra the processing infrastructure to crush those beans um, and make soybean oil, but also for animal feed. So I'm wondering if there's... Um, some other kind of bean because this was a you know they raised more than onions and so i'm wondering if it was a dry bean type crop or if you know more specifically but i i'd be i feel really certain in saying it wasn't soybeans no i'm positive it wasn't soybeans and honestly okay it's my modern assumptions i mean every time i say corn i say beans and this is a bad habit of my own uh <laughs> that people were definitely raising corn and, and other things and they seem to, I mean, with crop rotation and everything now, get nitrogen back to the soil. It's such an integral part of the Iowa agricultural industry to do that. And honestly, you know, I probably spoke out of turn when I said beans. They were definitely growing corn. Absolutely, everybody was growing corn by that point, uh, at least in some way, shape, or form. But uh, beans, you're, pro you're absolutely right. They probably weren't. And uh, I'm saying on, on on local radio, I made a mistake. I screwed up. I spoke out of turn. I wasn't. I wasn't meaning to poke you. It's just that. No, uh, no, not at all. Not were, at all. You're fine. They were, but they probably were raising some kind of a dry bean. They very well might have, um, because those were always in demand, and they shipped and they stored well. Yes, absolutely. Uh, as far as soybeans and when it exactly started in this region, I couldn't say that it was around World War II. It could have been, I mean, at least in this area, like a lot of, like the majority of the rest of the state. Um, as far as, 
you know, particular types or anything. The only crop that's given credit to the Pleasant Valley Gilbert-Bettendorf region is onions. And it becomes, Mm -hmm. it stays a mainstay crop all the way up until, really, it doesn't die off until the 1960s, really, almost early 70s. Really? Oh, yeah, it lasted a long time. As a matter of fact, it was, so the Bettendorf Company, they mostly manufactured, they did do the farm parts. They did. They eventually sold the patent to the metal wheel to a Davenport-based company. Uh, it was French and Hacked, which was previously Eagle Manufacturing Company. Um, yeah. They sold it to them. What they specialized in were railroad parts or railroad car parts, uh, mostly the side truck car frame. Uh, it was a solid piece of metal. Most of the side truck frames were not a popular. People had come up with a design, but none of them worked. They weren't very popular in the industry, and he had to do, William had to do a lot of convincing to, and really kind of took a few major gambles to convince people, my product will work. Uh, one of the major things, one of the problems at the time was, is that it would, they were all bolted together, so it would shake apart as they're going down the railroad line over time, and cause derailments, cause accidents, and nobody wanted that. And so he made up a piece that was a solid metal piece that housed everything. They were really durable, just like he did with the wheel. People had it, but he made it actually work and made it better. Um, So, I mean, there's stuff going on here. Um, You know what? I'll be honest with you. I kind of lost my train of thought there. Boy, I got derailed in the car truck train. (laughs) That's the power of the invention. Uh, Almost 100 years later, it can just... Knock you off the rails, so to speak. John, let me uh, let me kind of move move us forward in history, maybe a little bit. Um, we know that that World War One had a tremendous impact on German heavy Davenport. Um, I'm wondering how the 1910s, 1920s, 1930s affected Bettendorf. As far as the German population, they were always affected somewhat, and. William and his younger brother, Joseph, uh, who would take over the company after William's death in 1910, um, he was, they were both second-generation German-Americans in the country. So they spoke German, they were big into the culture, um, there were things, with, they were, like Joseph was against prohibition, uh, there were a couple things that he did to kind of, it was almost passive-aggressive in his way. The day before prohibition kicked in, he hired a... Uh, a riverboat and filled it with booze and paid for his workers to go out and have a big party on his dime. That's uh, a good boss. Oh, that's what I thought too. Uh, but it was kind of a passive aggressive thing. Beyond that, he employed, <laughs> he employed fully a little over half of the city of Bettendorf. Um, he was a major employer in the region. He was uh, nationally and internationally respected. Uh, William was the same way. Of course, William died young, uh, age of 53, 1910. Joseph was always hand-in-hand with his brother, had big positions in the company. If he wasn't vice president, he was plant manager, he was whatever. They bounced around to wherever they kind of needed him. Uh, he was a really hands-on guy. Uh, him and William would both go in and work the shops. They knew all the jobs. They would help people out. They were really personable, talk to people, stop people and talk to them. Uh, so that 
kind of stigma, the same thing that's really slamming Davenport and other places in the country as far as anti-German sentiment, never really hit the Bedendorf Company or William and Joseph in particular. Well, Joseph is dead by World War I, but uh, never really hit Joseph. The 1920s, as a matter of fact, they weathered World War I very well. Um, in the 1920s, it's a real boom year, even though the railroad industry takes its first big stunning blow starting in the 1920s. Uh, increased government regulation, uh, the automobile industry is really taken off and people are really starting to catch on. People are really digging cars. Roads are improving. You're getting more asphalt and concrete roads, which are making them better. Uh, so it's becoming a more, increasingly a more viable way, but it, Railroad is still a very strong method of transportation. So through the 1920s, he does not only very well, he's a multi-million dollar company. Um, he's making enough money in the teens. Prior, late prior to World War One, he built his mansion, Rivermont Collegiate, now up on the bluff. And it's an English manor style house, has over you know 20-some-odd rooms, sits on 20-some-odd acres of ground right up on the bluff dominates everything. Uh, you can still see it stand out on the I-74 bridge as you come across from Illinois. And imagine there was hardly anything else up there at the time. So, I mean, it was a monument in, it, in and of itself, not only to his prestige, but his wealth, his power. Uh, look at this guy. You want to do business with this guy because look at how successful he is. You look down to the right, there's his company sprawling along the riverfront. Um, so Joseph is still doing really well. He buys up smaller companies, and he starts diversifying. He buys up a company, uh, renames it Micro Machines, and that's going to be a huge thing uh, later on. Uh, when the railroad industry starts taking a hit, uh, they're able to, because of that early diversification, they're able to move into bread slicing machines, which becomes their primary moneymaker. Starting in 1930. That's kind of the beginning of the end, and William's world almost starts falling apart. Uh, the Great Depression hits the first couple of years, 1929, 1930, even 1931, he's not doing bad. And William, Joseph is the head of all these different companies, the head of all these different utilities. All those utilities I mentioned, the water company, the power company, all that is still run by, he's still the head of all these. So, I mean, he's almost like a, a one-man band for the city. Now, they have a lot of people in there. Uh, some of the mayors are, are high-powered executives at the Beckwith Company. And there was a political opponent starting in 1930 that came out and raised the question, hey, do you want uh, such a domineering presence in the city? And while he lost, the question was raised. And people started thinking. And so he stepped down. He eventually, well, he dies in 1933. But they step, the family steps back from those positions. The city takes it over. So it has a slightly less influence. He was the head of the Bettendorf Bank. Uh, yeah, Bettendorf everything. What can I say? And he knew how bad things were. Uh, his company went bankrupt. For, starting in 1931, he took pay state taxes. He was making no money. The shops actually closed down in 1931 because there were absolutely no railroad orders coming in. Uh, so everybody is starting to be hit. The 
people who had gotten loans on his word from the Bettendorf Bank, they were starting to, they don't know how bad it is because he's just kind of paying for them and watching after him. He's not calling in the debt. He's not calling in anything. He's just letting it slide because, well, he's the director, so we can't. And so until he died in 1933, no one knew how, what in dire straits they were. His sons, Edwin and William, uh, we'll call him Bill for the sake of argument, and that two Williams went around. Uh, so Edwin and Bill took over, and they didn't even quite know how bad it was. They were, taking, they were in high management positions of the company themselves. And all of a sudden, they're left with this huge debt. Uh, the state of Iowa moved in in 19, uh, I think it was, the shops were quiet until like 1935. 1936, the state of Iowa came in, took them over and said, you owe $273,000 in back taxes. You got a year to pay it. Go. Uh, what, 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 what are you talking about? <laughs> right. Hey, John. Uh, yeah, we're going to have to, you're going to have to put a, an end on this, uh, on this episode. Um, we will. Uh, we will come back and wrap things up. So please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 376th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme and was written and performed by Mark Zap Zapital. My name is Jay Swords. And my name is John Keeley. We would like to thank our guest, author John Broussard, who talked to us about the history of economics, uh, the economic history of Bettendorf. Uh, the History Bus for today's show, Rick Sweet and Ed Broders. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Holso Pula Nala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. Good night.